Welcome to the Atlanta Career Journey Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Varnado, and this week's guest is Terrence Burns. I've known Terrence for almost 30 years, and I've always been impressed with his intellect, sharp wit, and unbelievable work ethic. I've been impressed with his career journey that's gone from working at various roles at Delta Airlines uh, that migrated into an Olympic sponsorship there. Um, met him actually through my wife, Julia. We uh, have lots of stories we could tell about that, but not on this podcast. And then uh, he actually hired me into uh, an Olympic marketing role as a, as a division at the IOC. And then he's, his career took him to NASCAR and then back into the Olympic world where he's been a big consultant and doing a lot of other things. So I've been really just kind of watching his, his career skyrocket over the last 20 years and just impressed with him as a, as a friend and a human being as well. So Terrence, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Paul. Pleasure to join you. Excellent. So I, I gave a quick high level, but would love to just start with your background. So where are you originally from? Um, you know, family, school, first job. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I'm sitting here in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I live now, but I am a Southern boy, born in Nashville, Tennessee, and <clears throat> went to, uh, through, I think, second grade there, and then we moved to Orlando, Florida during the uh, the cool 60s during the space race, which is a fun place to be in Central Florida, and then we moved to Atlanta, uh, I think, in sixth grade. And I spent most of my adult, early adult life and education in Atlanta. Um, went to Emory University undergrad, somehow got in, somehow got out, <laughs> and then uh, got an MBA at uh, Georgia State while I was uh, working midnight shift in the tool room uh, at Delta Airlines. So uh, it's been a very uh, securitous route to, to get to what I'm doing for a living. Yeah. Uh, I can't say with any, any degree of uh, plausibility that it was planned. <laughs> That's usually how it works out. Right. So I, it is, you know, uh, yeah, I know that, you know, for those of us that started at Delta, you know, was it, there were entry points to get into the company. It was a great mm. uh, family type of an environment. Certainly the benefits were amazing with flying anywhere. Um, but the tool room, how did you settle on that? Tell me on that. Well, the tool room <clears throat> is not where I started. Uh, it's funny. I, I, I do a lot of lecturing uh, around the world to BBAs and MBAs and, I gave a presentation on the Olympic brand. Um, a lot of the work that we did, Paul, you and I worked together 20 years ago at the IOC. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it, inevitably, you know, the Olympics are fun and they're kind of sexy and they're cool. And, and uh, I get it. And, and a lot of young people inevitably ask, wow, you know, how did you, how did you get this job? As if there's a way to get a job like this. Number one, the, the job I have, I kind of created. <laughs> no one does what I do. Right. Um, and I look at, and I look at them straight in the face and I say, well, I can tell you exactly how to do this. And they get their little pad and paper out, <laughs> eager, big eyes. Right. And I say, I, well, my advice is I began as a janitor cleaning toilets. And, you know, the, the, the look of shock on the face of these eager young MBAs out of some of the best schools in the world. Yeah. Uh, but you and I both know when we began at Delta, me in 1981, almost 40 years ago, good Lord, mm-hmm. uh, you had to start at the bottom. And for me, that was cleaning toilets, stripping paint off airplanes, sweeping floors. Uh, and that's what you had to do to, to get to get going. And uh, I uh, 
did that for about a year, year and a half, and then uh, got into the tool room. And the uh, if you fly into Atlanta, you see those big hangars that say "Fly Delta Jets." Well, that's mm-hmm. where that's where I made my career beginning, and I spent about six or seven years there. So, Paul, right out of Emory University Business School, it was another six or seven years before I attended a meeting, wrote a memo, <laughs> made wow. a business phone call, whatever. Uh, it was just uh, what you had to do. Yeah. But it was a good opportunity for me to, to be honest with you, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me uh, to go into a blue collar environment and have to work hard physically and uh, learn how to get along with people from all different uh, perspectives. Well, and I think um, what's, what's lost on, you know, what, what you did and what a lot of people at Delta did, quite frankly, to start their careers there is you learn the business from the ground up and you understand you know, when decisions are made at, at leadership level or, you know, in, in the corporate world and they don't really see what happens when you've got a jet turnaround somewhere in Boise, Idaho, and, yeah, you know, you've got the sure. wrong set of tools or, you know, you're running out of fuel or whatever the case is, you see that at the ground level and it, it gives you that, that perspective. And I think it is really good to kind of see that aspect of the company to start with and gives you some level of, you know, certainly humility, but also what hard work is and, and working with all levels of the, the, the employees, I think it's really a good experience. Well, it, it, it did make a difference, uh, you know, from, from cleaning toilets to being a director in the company in 15 years. You, you, you do learn, work in a lot of different areas, but you also, as, as you noted, there's a humility, but there's also a sense of gratitude um, that we did have people at Delta, as you recall, who went to the right school or knew the right person and went straight into what was called a management training program. If you remember methods, um, <laughs> then that's I was where so I started. Far from methods. I was, it, I was so far from methods. I didn't know how to spell it. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there, there was a path, I think for people who, uh, who were in the right place, right time, right school, right academics. Uh, I'm what you call a late bloomer, uh, a very late bloomer. But anyway, I think those years at the beginning were, were very instructive for me personally, not maybe professionally, because, uh, you know, I didn't do much around my degree uh, in business. Uh, and the only reason I have a business degree is because I wanted to be a dentist. And at Emory, uh, the organic chemistry course was the watershed course for all pre-med and pre-dent students. And uh, I made the first D in my life in organic chemistry. And I went to see the professor, uh, Dr. Goldstein, and he told me it was a gift. He said, you made a 12 on the final. I felt sorry for you, so I gave you a D. And uh, I said, well, I can take the course next quarter. He said, well, you can take it, yeah, and then you still won't get into dental school, and you'll have a degree in biology, and you can either teach high school or pump gas. He said, go to the business school. So uh, that's how I got to the business school. Terrence, I've known you a long time. That's the first time I've actually heard that story about dental school. That's great. But, oh, yeah. But oh, you know yeah. what? I mean, those are, those are character-building lessons as well as, you know, some sage advice from somebody that was really looking out for you and saying, you know, you hey, can he learn Hey, he did me this. a favor. Yeah, yeah. For and sure. Think, he, did yeah. Me a, he, he did me a favor, Paul. There's no question. That, uh, it was hard love. It was hard to, hard to listen to at 20 years old. I was a, a junior, I think, at Emory. Uh, yeah. It was really hard and uh, crushing in some ways, but um, yeah, he did me a favor. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I think that's a lesson we can all um, you know, take from that is, you know, just uh, d- don't, 
don't make decisions in silos, you know, listen to some people that have some expertise, have got some context around it. You can still pursue it if you want, but also know, you know, what the risks are and, and where things may wind up. So that's, that's a great lesson. So um, I was thinking about, you know, how we met. So you obviously knew my wife, mm-hmm. Julia, uh, long before mm-hmm. we met. And um, I actually met her on a Delta plane um, coming back from Fort Lauderdale. And uh, I think you heard a different side from her about, you know, our meeting and um, gave, <laughs> uh, gave her some sage yeah, dating I, advice. <laughs> but uh, I did. She and I, she and I were on an airplane heading to Edmonton, Canada. Yeah. To do something. I have the slightest idea what it was. Uh, 1993, maybe. And uh, she told me about this guy that she was dating and she liked and he kind of liked her and they were getting along, but uh, he seemed to have a hard time pulling the trigger. And if you remember, I told her to tell you to, uh, you know, water, get off the pot. And here we are all these years later. (laughs) I didn't even know you, Paul, but uh, you can thank me for that. Because she's a great lady. I thank you, you every got, day you for got, that, man. You got a yeah. star. You got that's, a star. That's awesome. We Yeah, we definitely, uh, usually around our anniversary, we talk about you and just how things started and all that. So it was it was definitely funny. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I remember, um, you know, I, I knew of you for a while. And then um, the, the Olympics, you know, started up. So Atlanta got the bid in, what, 89? Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know when Delta's sponsorship started up, but... At some point, Julia talked about this opportunity to do the Olympic marketing bit, and that's why I started hearing a lot about you and, and met you at some functions. And so talk a little bit about how the, uh, the Olympic sponsorship happened. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Um, <clears throat> I had worked my way uh, out of the jet base into uh, – I was a purchasing agent, a buyer for Delta mm-hmm. Airlines. I think I bought mainframe software and aircraft seats, neither of – which I knew anything about, of course. And uh, I wanted, uh, by that time I had finished the MBA. Uh, I was on work at midnight shift. I told you in the tool room, we had an yeah. infant. So I would, uh, you know, work midnight shift, get a, you know, get home in the morning, take care of the kid for a couple hours, give it to a nanny for three or four hours, wake up, wait for my wife to come home from day shift, give her the kid. Then I'd go to graduate, go to school at night and then, then from there on to work. So I was finally finished with that. Uh, I think that took from 86 to 89. And then um, my, my MBA focus was international business and affairs. I had decided that that really, that's what I really wanted to do. And I actually toyed with applying to the state department and um, still would have liked to have done that, honestly, but uh, I didn't and stuck, stuck with Delta. And uh, I wanted to get into international marketing and they told me the only way you can get into international marketing is to be in domestic marketing. And you don't have any reservations or ticketing experience. You've only been in the jet base or, you know, as a buyer. So you probably won't make it into marketing. So I just kept at it and kept at it, <clears throat> bid and bid and bid. And I got, got into marketing. And as a matter of fact, I got into the Atlanta district sales office, which again, they told me you will never be able to work in Atlanta. That's only for senior people. Somehow I got in. Yeah. And uh, I'll never forget the interview. Well, Sophie Gata, you remember Sophie? Uh, yep. She said, so why do you want to be in marketing? You know? And I said, well, I really don't. I just want to be, I just want to use this job to get to international marketing. <laughs> as long as we're telling the truth here, that's really what I want to do. 
And uh, she kind of looked at me and she said, that's the best answer I've ever had. So she, she gave me my shot. And then about a year later, I got into international marketing. And as you know, I was part of the Pan Am acquisition team in mm -hmm. 91 when we were buying the European route structure. And I was the marketing kid. Actually, I've written a book about that experience. I was the marketing kid who went around all the Pan Am marketing off sales offices in Europe. And I had like 24 hours to decide who to keep and who not to. It was pretty sobering and intimidating. Um, yeah. But I enjoyed it and loved it. Uh, lived in Germany. Then they sent me to Russia in 1992, literally just months after the fall of the Soviet Union. Hmm. Uh, and being in Moscow by yourself in those days was character building and uh, you really had to figure out uh, how to get stuff done quickly or you, or you were in a mess. So uh, I came back, Paul, they disbanded the international marketing group and I got stuck in agency marketing, I think is where Julie and I went out to Canada to do something. But anyway, uh, the Olympics came around and uh, by that time I was uh, an administrative assistant to Bob Coggin, who was the SVP of marketing. Mm -hmm. I still don't know how I got that job either, but it was a, a highly sought after job where they took younger people. I was probably in the old end of the spectrum. I was in my mid thirties, uh, younger people paired them with a senior officer for a year in each division and uh, ostensibly to create quote leaders of the future. So I, I worked for Bob for about nine months out of the 12 and then the Olympics arose. It was late 93 they came to me and said, hey, you know, we're going to sponsor the Olympics. We need somebody to manage it. You want to do that? And I said, I, you know, I did the, the calculation in my head. Like, right now I'm attending meetings, writing memos, and picking up his dry cleaning every other day. <laughs> yeah, I'll do it. I'll take a <laughs> shot at it. <laughs> I didn't know much about the Olympics other than I enjoyed watching it, you know, every four years. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but at Delta, as you know, you, Julia worked on our team and it was a very, very focused, rigorous business exercise for about two years to get a return on that investment. We had to measure it and do things that uh, made sense for the company. And the IOC, uh, liked what we did. As you know, down south, we have a saying, even a blind pig finds an acorn every once in a while. Mm. And, we did well, uh, and we were able to measure it. And uh, a lot of sponsors are still not able to measure the efficacy of their investment uh, in sport. And uh, so the IC asked me and some other fellows to uh, to create a brand new marketing agency for them, uh, which was Meridian, which uh, you worked with me at Meridian. And yep. so that's how you know that's how I got in the Olympics. It's the thing about the Olympic Games for me uh, was. The, the altruistic side of it. I mean, I like sport. People say, oh, you must be a sport junkie. To be honest with you, I'm not. Um, I don't have a favorite baseball team or football team or basketball team at all. Um, but I really, like a lot of people around the world, react and enjoy the Olympic ethos and what mm -hmm. it's really about. I, I always have a saying when I begin my presentation an hour presentation on the Olympic brand, I say, how many people in here think the Olympics are about sports? And everybody raises their hand. Then an hour later when it's done, how many people think it's about sport? Nobody raises their hand because it yeah. isn't about sport. sport. Sport happens to be the vehicle that takes you to these universal values. And that's why it's so beloved. 
That's why yep. 206 nations around the world participate in it. It's, it's politically neutral. It's about hope. It's about optimism. It's about friendship, fair play. Those, that, that's the real currency of this property instead of the sport. Now, the sport is exciting to watch, and we like it. But yeah, to show you how unique the Olympics are, uh, probably you and I would not spend a Sunday going to a curling event if it was held in our town. However, if curling is on TV during the Olympics, you'll watch it passionately yes. because of the stories around it. Yep. So that's how I got into it, Paul, and uh, it became a lifelong passion of mine and has been a lifelong passion of mine. And I'm extremely, extremely grateful uh, that I found it because it, uh, it isn't business. It's, it's something more to me. Yeah. Well, I remember when you kicked off that brand study when we were at Meridian and it was, I was, what you just described was what I thought exactly. It's all about the sports, right? It's, you know, uh, summer games, winter games, all the different events, you know, we, we turn on the TV in 10 minutes, we're gymnastics experts and we're talking about how they got a deduction on this and that. And then the other three years kind of goes away. And that brand study mm -hmm. really opened things up about fair play and the humanity campaign. It's some of the things that really just, it, it explained a lot of why the Olympics resonated for so much of us that whether we're passionate sports fans or casual sports fans or don't watch anything else other than the Olympics. It really is kind of a, you know, a, a collector of, of everybody and it's really uh, unique in its, in its purpose. So it was pretty amazing well, to see that. Well, I'll give you an anecdote from that brand study that you're referring to uh, focus groups. We did, as you recall, all over the world, I think we did mm -hmm. them in 10 countries and we did quantitative in 11, but the, the focus groups really to me were, were fascinating. Um, and I remember one in Senegal and we're in a room and, you know, we're behind, we're behind the mirror or a window that we can see them. They can't see us. It's in French, of course. And I'm listening through headphones to a translator. And, um, you know, you do a lot of, a lot of different exercises in brand focus groups. It's different than product focus groups where you're touching the product, et cetera, and feeling of it and its efficacy and how, you know, brands are much more, uh, of course, emotive. And there are a lot of exercises that you do to, to get past, you know, the thin crust and into the bedrock of the brand. And one of the exercises was to, um, you know, describe an attribute and then tell us what that means to you. And I remember this young man stood up and he said, the Olympics uh, to me are about hope. And hope was the word, frankly, that had not arisen in any of the other focus groups. And we actually didn't test it quantitatively. We should have, but we didn't. But I did end up using it. We, not I, but we did uh, end up using it in the positioning platforms, as you recall. But this kid says, uh, it's about hope. And um, the moderator says, well, what do you mean? Can you explain it a little more? And it was a moving moment. Um, he was looking literally through that glass window. And I felt he was looking right into my eyes, Paul. It felt like he was. Hmm. He couldn't see me. And I couldn't see yeah, I could see him. He couldn't see me. And he said... This is literally what he said. He said, well, it gives me hope because look at me. Got real quiet. He said, I'm black. I'm an African. We're poor. And then he said, and no one cares. And his eyes started welling up. And you know me, I'm sensitive. My eyes started welling up. Yeah. And he said, uh, but when I watch the Olympic Games and I see 
a Senegalese athlete standing next to an American or European or German or whatever, he said, I know that at least for the next two and a half minutes, we're all equal. And he pointed up at the heaven in the eyes of God. And he said, and that is why I love the Olympics. It gives me hope. And it was just one of those moments that everything stripped away, all the business, all the BS, all the, yeah. it, it just came down to that. And it was so powerful. And then I said, you know, he understands the Olympic brand better than the IOC. Yeah. Uh, and I'll never, I'll never forget his face. I'll never forget the, the, how his voice sounded and how he clarified in that moment for me why I was doing what I was doing. Yeah. That's an amazing story. And you know what's interesting about that, Paul, is, is all the research today on Gen Zs and millennials around brands is ostensibly how they support brands that are, are cause-related rather than profit-related. In other words, brands that are putting back in, into society. You know, one of the early brands like that may have been, you know, Ben and Jerry's 20, 25 years ago. Everybody thought they were crazy hippies. Well, they were onto something. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and brands, you see, there's, there's a big land rush for brands now around COVID to get to that soft spot about putting things back. But my point around about this is there's probably never been a brand more attuned to that type of thinking, cause-related, value-based marketing than the Olympics. I'm not sure they've done a good job of articulating that in a business perspective, but certainly people get it and they understand it. So I think for the, the, the people, you know, 25 to 30 years old or 35, if you really want to think about a brand that stands for something and means something, the Olympics do it. The IOC every single day puts $3 million every day, $3 million a day into amateur sport on a global basis. So they really are putting shoes on the kids of shoes on the excuse me shoes on the feet of kids uh you know trainers uh basketball courts anything uh, around the world were places that just don't have it yeah. so i think that's pretty powerful and uh, that's a story that i like to talk about when i talk about the olympics instead of the gold medalist running around the stadium with a shirt off flexing nobody cares about that yeah yeah it's really about the the stories and and more often than not, it's the ones that didn't finish with gold on the podium. You know, it's all the other ones about mm -hmm. their journey to get there and the perseverance. And those types of character moments is something that each of us can take that aren't, you know, going to be competing in the Olympics or whatever. But every day you deal yeah. with your own challenges and you rise up and you address those. So that's a great. Well, a great you know, you're, you're in your mid-20s. You're just out of school. You're beginning your career. Um, I guess... <laughs> If I, yeah, it, it happened to me by accident. I didn't know. But if I could go back and say to myself at that time, why don't you find something that you're going to believe in for the rest of your career, something that matters to you personally, something that you think makes the world a better place. Now, let's be honest, those, those opportun opportunities are few and far between. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, you're talking about things that may or may not pay much, especially if you want to go to work for a nonprofit, et cetera. Um, however, uh, you know, spending 15 years at Delta, which was glorious. I love that company. I still adore that brand. It fed me and my family and started my life. Mm -hmm. um, and I will always be thankful for it. But those 15 years were quite different 
<laughs> than the last 25 to 30 years working on the Olympics, where I'm working on, I believe, and I don't think I'm, I am working on something that makes the world a better place. Every single day I get to wake up and, and do that, whether it's helping cities win the Olympic Games, and I've probably worked on 11 Olympic bids. Uh, six of them have won. I worked on two World Cup bids that both won. When you're, when you're part of something like that and you change the trajectory of a country and its people, especially mm-hmm. the smaller the company, country, the bigger the impact, honestly, honestly that is a, <clears throat> that's a, sobering, it's a sobering thing, and um, it's an emotional thing. And it's a little bit different, I hate to say it, than selling tickets from, uh, from Atlanta to London. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it kind of transcends that. You know, I, I definitely have a soft spot in my heart for Delta. It was my first job out of college. I enjoyed the, just the airline industry. I'm kind of a, you know, a, w- wanted to be a pilot since I was younger, but just didn't play out. But uh, just being a part of that was great. But you're right, there is um, there's something bigger in the world that, you know, our careers have taken us in different paths, but yours certainly has, you know, I think brought about much more impact in what you do um, with the bid committees and talking through some of the Olympic brand. And, and it's not just about sports, it's about the, the life in general. Tell me a little bit about, so you got into um, working for bid committees and how'd you go from, mm-hmm. from Olympic marketing and what we did at Meridian to uh, getting into the bid, the bid world? Like, well, like everything else, it just <clears throat> happenstance. Uh, you yeah. know, I left Meridian, if you recall, at the end of 2000. Uh, I bridged back a little bit in 2001 mm-hmm. on the consulting. But um, literally the second that I left Meridian, uh, we got a call. I was working with my buddy George Herfler, who you know quite well at the time. Yep. And jo- George and I got a call to ask if we would be interested in helping the Beijing 2008 bid committee uh, with their international messaging. Um, and to put this politely and adroitly, uh, the, the Chinese government at that time was not attuned to international messaging and communications. A lot of the things that were coming out of that bid committee were... <laughs> You know, 2000 wasn't far away from 1978, which is right. when they opened up. So, you know, this is 20 years ago. So, you know, think of China 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So they needed some help on how to position it um, appropriately because the IOC, uh, to be honest, wanted Beijing to win. They wanted to take the games to China. They finally figured out it was right. 2008 would be the right time to go back. So um, George and I did it and uh, they won. And then Vancouver was bidding on 2010. They called us, went to work for them. They won. Uh, then 9-11 hit, and our Georgian, my little nascent business, died, like everything did in the world that was dependent on discretionary marketing budgets. Mm-hmm. And I uh, went to work for NASCAR for about a year. Um, and that was kind of like Jesus out in the desert. And not that I'm Jesus, but it was, like, it was like wandering in the desert for 40 days. I enjoyed the people at NASCAR with whom I worked uh, tremendously. Um, really smart people. I just struggled a little bit with the sport uh, and uh, where I'd come from working on the Olympics to working on NASCAR. 
Mm-hmm. Um, plus, I was in a role that I probably wasn't really suited for, but I talked my way into it, which is in a corporate communications role. But be that as it may, the Olympics went back to it, Paul, and, and I realized pretty quickly that bidding on the Olympic Games up until that point was kind of a technical process. Fill out this form, fill out all these papers. How many venues do you have? Where are they? How many hotels? Where are they? Do you have roads? How many airports? How many hospitals? Pretty rope stuff. Mm -hmm. We figured out that it was a little sexier than that. And being a marketing person and a brand person, um, I I approached it as a marketing exercise and not a technical exercise. So we re- we were able to create the why instead of the how. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the why is so much more important. So we were pretty successful in that um, strategy with Bid Cities. It became something that kind of took over a lot of my time for almost 20 years. And I got, I, I got away from sponsorship and was really living in the bidding and, and, and uh, brand and messaging world and found out I, I could do it. Um, I didn't think it was that hard, actually. <laughs> I thought it was kind of obvious what to do. But funny enough, a lot of countries didn't do it. And uh, we were able to work with a lot of great, great cities and nations and, and help them. Uh, yeah. Help them not only bring the games to their, to their community, but to hopefully change the course of their, of their nations going forward. That's great. And I think it, you know, you sort of, you know, brought your strengths into that process. You know, you've got the brand experience, you know, you're, um, you're just a fantastic writer. You've got a way with words. You can encapsulate things and, you know, bring that emotion out. And I think that was smart of you instead of just saying, oh, we can, we can update your form for how you fill this out. Or, you know, here's the checklist of things you need to do. But it's beyond that. It's something that no one's really thought about. And it was right in your wheelhouse. So that was that was amazing that you were able to kind of, you know, not only do that one time, but, you know, would you say 11 you've worked with? I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, right place, right time has a lot to do with anybody's career and life in general. Um, Certainly. And that's another thing for young, yeah, for young people to realize. Um, and I think there are a lot more opportunities like that around us that we're not aware of. I think mm-hmm. we all get stuck into our little wheelhouse and what we think we're good at or what we think we want to do and you don't acknowledge, I mean, you just use me as a, as an example. Uh, you know, I wanted to be a dentist. Then I had to, then I had to get a degree in business, which I had no interest in. Then I had to be a janitor. And then, you know, I had to try to figure out how to get to what I wanted. I had no, no idea that I would ever want to work in sport, let alone mm-hmm. the Olympics. But I do think those opportunities are around us. You have to be aware of it. You, and I would say this to young people too, you just got to be willing to take a risk, especially yeah. in your twenties and thirties, uh, you know, not to be flipped, but nothing's fatal, frankly, uh, at that age in terms of wanting to try something and do something. Um, and I was just fortunate that the, the first thing I tried, I fell in love with and seemed to have an affinity for and be pretty good at it. Either that or the bar was pretty low, it was probably a little of both, <laughs> but you know, don't, you know, unless you want to, unless you're having a professional degree in law or, or, or uh, medicine or, you, you know, those types of things where you're, that's what you're going to do. Um, you know, there's a book about being a specialist and not a generalist, and it goes back and forth and back and forth. And I probably speak out of both sides of my mouth on that. I think you have to be a generalist at the beginning and try a lot of things. 
And at some point, you have to specialize and be a, be an expert at something. But nobody expects you to be an expert in your 20s. Right. Uh, or frankly, even to your 30s. So um, keep your eye out for the craziest opportunity you can think of. Because honestly, I'm sure you would give people the same advice, Paul, at our age. You're not as old as me, but you're catching up. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> um, behind you, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in your 20s and 30s, if you want to... If you've got a degree in whatever it is, world history, and you decide you want to work at SpaceX, go out to SpaceX and say, I'll be a janitor. Just do anything you can do. Uh, if it doesn't work in three or four years, what have you lost? Not much. Yeah. So, yeah, be bold at, at that age. Just do not be constrained by what you think you're supposed to do or what others tell you you're supposed to do. That's great advice. And it's, uh, I think some people can get, get inside their own heads. It's hard to get out of that fear sometimes of, you know, especially if you get into a point where I'm, I'm comfortable or I'm okay. Um, and then trying to like throw it all away and risk it. Um, it's, you know, I think being afraid of failure is something that we don't probably have the luxury of anymore. And, and the way that things are changing and how, um, how fast things move. These days, I think you continually have to try to, you know, not necessarily reinvent yourself, but be open to new things and leveraging your strengths no and understanding where it's, where it can take you. So let me ask you no this. Question. I think, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I just think, I think you and I maybe have been, may have been the last generation to start at a company like Delta and actually believe that we were going to stay there for 40 years. I thought I would. I, I mean, I that too. was the norm, right? Yeah. That's what my dad did what your dad probably did and uh you know look at young people today and i've worked with a lot of millennials not not many gen z's but um you know job hopping uh they get you know what i hate is for an old person to criticize uh the young generation anyway because we were criticized by our parents they thought we were all hippies and the world's going to hell because of <laughs> us with uh you know rock and roll music and Right. And pot right. and everything else that was going on, but, um, but we thought they didn't get it either. I, right? I, I think it's yeah, but I, I think it's admirable that young people want to move around and experience as much as they can. <clears throat> and but I do think that the flip side of that is you do have to pay your dues, and it, it's hard for somebody that age to hear and accept. I sure as hell hated hearing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hated being the bright young thing in the room that probably had a better idea, but no one would listen to because I was 27 years old. Right. And the re reality is that human beings are human beings. And uh, even if, even if you do have a better idea, there is a way to express that idea that doesn't alienate older, more experienced people in the room. I never was good at that. As you remember, Paul, I'm pretty frank and pretty straightforward <laughs> in spite of my lack of diplomacy. I've done well in a, in a, in a, in a uh, career that's about diplomacy, the Olympics. But I think also some advice looking back is somebody told me one time, you can be right or you can be damn right. And you don't want to be damn right. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yep. there's a way, there's a way to be aggressive. There's a way to be assertive. There's a way to be ambitious where older people will actually help you as opposed to being put off by you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it gets back to, you know, that, that brand we were talking about, it's not just about, you know, a logo or a company. Um, it's also your personal brand, you know, and I think you have to focus on that as much as you do in your job as well. So it's, uh, 
is well, definitely. I'll tell you what, I, I know that you feel the same way. I'm glad my entire uh, adolescence and college career was not documented in social media. I may <laughs> never have gotten hired. So that's the other thing that uh, yeah. is good advice for younger people. But you know what? Mores are changing as well. And, um, you know, people get hired and um, that probably 30, 40 years ago wouldn't have a chance to be, you know, Google, Amazon, et cetera, hiring systems engineers without degrees from MIT, without degrees at all, as long as they yeah. know their stuff. I yeah. think that's a good thing. I think that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it may shift a lot of things about where people are willing to maybe take risks. You know, I, I don't want to go to college not knowing what I want to do, or I want to do something, but college isn't going to help me. So let me just put that on hold and see where this takes me, you know, and, and yeah. be able to risk that. I think there's nothing wrong with that. Nope. So, nope. Yeah. I agree. So I know you've spent, uh, I can't, what was that, that movie up in the air or whatever? You've spent a good portion of your adult life on an airplane. Um, how, <laughs> yeah, how have, yeah. <laughs> what was, tell me the numbers again. It was, it was something ridiculous over the last 20 years. Oh, I don't know. It was like 40, uh, 40% one? of your... I, 40% of your time you were in another city or flying or something. It was crazy. But so we're, we're in this uh, era well, of COVID. Two, yeah, two, inter, two, two, two international trips a month on average for 20-something years. I probably have spent at least a third of my life in another country. Yeah. Um, which makes this whole time in America pretty interesting, what we're going through. But that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, so now we're in this age of COVID. Um, we're doing this, this mm -hmm. podcast on a Zoom call. I, I work my entire day. I, I said on another podcast, I can't figure out if I'm working from home or if I'm living at work now, but there's no, there's no yeah. lines anymore. But for you, who spent so much time traveling, how, is that, how has that changed your world and what you're doing right now from COVID? Um. Well, in, in a very weird way, it has come along, if I can say it, a terrible thing has come along at the right time for me personally. We moved to Santa Fe last July. I throttled back. I'm probably working about 40% of the time that, that I used to work, and we both work together, so you know how much we both work, especially mm -hmm. in the roles we had. Uh, you and I had to be in uh, Sydney once a month, Naga, Nagano, Japan once a month, and Lausanne, Switzerland once a month, and we lived in Atlanta. So yeah. we were also young, and we could do that. But um, in, in my business, in a consulting business, uh, what I sell is my personal integrity and reputation. Um, there are a lot of smart people out there. There are a lot of people who may have similar backgrounds or skills, um, and at the end of the day, what you're truly selling as a consultant is convincing somebody that you know more about an issue than they do, and you can help them, and they have to trust you. That's it. So the face, that's why I was always willing, if somebody, and you remember this, I mean, I would fly to Sydney, Australia for a four-hour meeting and then come back yeah. because face-to-face -face is really important in the consulting business. I miss the... Uh, I miss that part of it because in addition to being with a client, I, I just think you learn and you, you bond better in person. Uh, fortunately, the, my, my big client right now is um, Allianz. It's a global insurance company based in Munich. And they, uh, they're the new ISC top partner. So we're helping them with a, a plethora of stuff. And we did get to spend some time with them before all this hit, which was great. 
Um, but it's, it does take away, I think, from the personal piece of it uh, that's really important in our business. The flip side of that is um, I think we've all learned that we can work pretty efficiently and more affordably in this construct. I think, honestly, one of the business I would hate to be in when this is over is, is uh, you know, corporate real estate. Uh, yeah. I just think a lot of firms are going to have figured out that there can be as efficient and a lot more affordable with a lot of, quote, mine workers working from home. You know, some places you have to be at work. Right. But people who, you know, generally work in a cube farm, for example, in a, in a giant corporate construct, a lot of those people can do what they can do from home. And yeah. they're happier, I think, generally. I, you know, I've been working remote forever. I mean, as you know, I had offices in Atlanta, but I was never there. Hell, I just was never home. And when I was home, I didn't go to the office. I usually would work from home. So I'm used to it. I think it's been a, um, I think it's been helpful in the construct of learning how to be efficient and lowering costs. I do think that there is no substitute, however, for face-to-face -face interaction with a client um, for matters of import and, uh, you know, big business, big, big expenditures, big investments. If they trust you and they're looking for your advice, eventually you have to sit in a room and work with them. Right. Yeah, that's, that's true. And I think you can, you know, if you're in a consulting engagement, whether you're in the Olympics or you're in software development or whatever the case is, you, um, I think this will shift. It certainly has shifted a lot of people's minds that maybe they felt like they needed to have a room full of people co-located to see things getting done. And that level of um, leadership, I think, is, has certainly been um, retrained just because they've had to, but they've also seen, you know, not a whole lot of drop in productivity has happened. But I think if you get into an engagement, you can probably, you know, you have those face-to-face -face meetings on the front end. Instead of you having to travel somewhere for, you know, a 16-week engagement every week, you maybe do that for the first couple of weeks and you build those relationships. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you can dial it back a little bit, work remote have a couple check-ins and a closure at the end. And that might be the new model that we have for doing some of those things. It'll be interesting to see it, it, when. It may be, it may be, it, it is. Um, I would be frustrated if I were starting my career in international business in this time frame. I think yeah. uh, one of the things that, that I've been able to enjoy and why I've been able to do what I do, um, you know, relatively successfully is I really enjoy other cultures. It's why I, it's why I went back to school and, and focused on that area of study. I, you know, somebody asked me a question the other day, do you miss travel? And, and the honest answer is yes. <clears throat> do I miss my family when I'm gone? Of course I miss my family when I'm gone. Right. Um, and it's a terrible, it's a terrible trade-off, but I, I, I must tell you, I, I'm, I'm, I am at my most happy state of mind. If I'm somewhere I've never been, uh, with a, a wad of money that I don't even know how to calculate in my pocket, trying to talk to a cab driver in a language I can't speak, trying to get somewhere that I don't know where the hell I'm going. <laughs> that turns me on and that's exciting because you've really, you've really got to think. And you, it's just, it's a hell of a lot harder than, than going to Chicago and checking into the Hilton and having a club sandwich. Yeah. You know, I, I think I would just, I think I'd wither on the vine if I had to do that for a living. But um, those days, will return. There's no doubt that we will go back to some, some level of pre COVID life, but I'm not sure it will ever be exactly the way it was until we have vaccines that, that actually work. 
Yeah, I think that uh, I think you're right. I think that you know the the quality of the testing is you know is challenging, and once you're tested, who knows what tomorrow brings? You could be exposed again, and it's hard to really say until you get, like you said, a vaccine or something that can actually minimize you know the impact of that. I think it's gonna, and we may we may be wearing masks a year from now on planes just because it's a general precaution that you know is is become socially acceptable. We'll kind of see where that that leads us, but. That's another podcast as well. Yeah. Well, the, and, and the only other thing I would say on that point, and I know we're, I'm cognizant of your time. Um, <laughs> the best, the best, <laughs> the best education that I've received uh, is, is the travel that, that I've done. And you know what I'm talking about. You did it as well. Yeah. You cannot spend, you cannot spend most of your adult working life working amongst other cultures and in other countries and it not change you and it not impact how you look at the world. Yep. And I'm not trying to be, I'm not being pejorative, but I'm saying that perspective does help you through a lot of other business and personal issues. You become more tolerant, you become more open-minded. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love this nation. I'm proud to be an American. I love this country. I think it's a brilliant place. But I also know that there are people all over the world because I've met them, I've lived with them, I've been in their homes, I've worked in their cities, I've sometimes lived in their countries, who live just as fulfilling lives as we do, who may not think the same way that we do, quote, the American mindset. And you know what? That's fine. Um, and I think the more young people the, the, the more opportunities they have to experience different and sometimes contravening points of view, the better that's going to serve them uh, over the course of their personal and professional lives. So get out there, try to try to travel when we can try to work in a, with or in another culture. And you're going to learn a lot more than you will uh, stuck in a cube for 20 years in Knoxville or wherever. I wholeheartedly agree. I, I mean, I watched, I watched you kind of go through that. You trained me on certain cultures and uh, you know, I didn't grow up wanting to travel the world. I was pretty, I was pretty content being in my own corner of the Southeast and you know, I liked the food that was here and the, you know, ESPN and all that. <laughs> and you know, I even remember when we were in Nagano, I think spent a night at McDonald's every day for a week, you know, and um, mm-hmm. it was, you know, mm-hmm. between like watching you and, and hearing some of your experiences and, um, you know, that translator shoe that was, you know, side by side with me, I've, I've ventured out, learned, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, new, new culture and food. And, you know, it, it really changed me. I mean, that experience changed me that I didn't expect. And I've, I've opened Great. my, you know, my observations and my perspectives on, you know, social, political, economic, religious, um, you know, you peel those away, we're all humans and we all have the same kind of basic needs. And, uh, you know, we we're raising kids and trying to do the best we can and they're doing the same thing. And it, it was interesting to kind of compare those notes. And I never, I never would have, um, I never would have experienced that had it, you know, the job not taken me there. But in hindsight, I really echo what you said, you know, get out there, travel, you know, learn, experience new things. I know my kids have all studied abroad. And uh, my youngest will be doing that in a year. And I think it just, it, it changes you for the better. And I think it makes you a more, round, more well-rounded human. And it gives you a lot more perspective than just being in your own little corner of the world. 
Great well, advice, Harris. I actually think it, it, it makes you a better American. You know, if American is, if that's your deal, it makes yeah. you a better whatever you are. But I look at, you know, you, you could just look at what's happening. It's not in America. It's worldwide right now, the rise of populism and xeno, mm. xenophobia. And um, there's reasons for that that are, you know, we can't go in on this podcast. But I think if, if a lot of people in the world had had the opportunity to just share a meal, that's the first thing I do, actually, when I go into a new country with a new client, whether it's in Kazakhstan and I have to sit there and eat five different versions of horse uh-huh. over a, a four-hour meal, you know, what you find is in, a, in most cultures, other than uh, northern and northwestern European culture, which is kind of our business culture, but Latin cultures, Asian cultures, uh, all over the world, you may go there for a week and the first day or two, you're just, you're spending time getting to know each other. Yeah. And Americans get really frustrated about that. You know, we're on a schedule. Here's my to-do list. Here's my task line. Here's what I've got planned for this day. I mean, the first time I went to work in Rome, uh, yeah, I spent three quarters of a day with a guy I'm supposed to be interviewing and he's taking me out drinking cappuccino and looking at shirts and talking to me about life and my family. And I was young and I didn't even know what the hell he was, why he was doing that. But I, I learned so much and I still remember that, you know, that was in 1991. So 30 years later, I remember him vividly in that lesson he taught me. Uh, and I think taking the time to know people personally uh, pays huge dividends when you finally get down to business. Something yeah. we don't do well here. That's 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 great advice. And I think you know we, we're in this fast-paced world where things have to be quicker and more efficient and more robotic. And you know we are still humans, and there is an aspect to that that you need to connect before you sort of get down and be productive. So it's. That's super advice, man. Well said. Well, Terrence, I know you're busy. Um, I, I've taken up enough of your time, but I think this has been fantastic. I always, I always enjoy talking to you and hearing your experiences. You've, you've lived a lifetime of experiences for probably 10 people. But uh, thanks for sharing you know, what you've done, what you're doing, and, and where you're headed with uh, the audience here. And, and thanks again for your time. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Paul. I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you so much for this opportunity. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.